Are you an accredited investor looking for a new opportunity to generate passive income and build the retirement of your dreams? Then elevate your investment game with Viking Capital, where wealth meets wisdom. Whether you're a seasoned investor or just starting out, Viking Capital can help guide you towards financial freedom through passive real estate investing. With strong and transparent underwriting, Viking identifies low-risk opportunities with the goal of preserving investor capital and maximizing long-term growth potential. And their accessible and responsive investor relations team will help you understand how each investment will impact your unique financial goals. With $800 million in assets acquired, more than $230 million in equity raised, and more than 5,000 units under management, Viking Capital is your path to early retirement. To learn about Viking Capital's latest investment opportunity, which is available for you right now, visit go.vikingcapllc.com forward slash best. That's go.vikingcapllc.com forward slash best to get started today. Did you know that within a decade, women will hold $30 trillion in investable assets? Yet somehow, only 19% of women reported feeling confident in selecting investments that align with their long-term goals. Our friends at InvestHer are out to change that. InvestHerCon is the number one premier conference for women in real estate, and it's happening June 2nd through the 4th in Austin, Texas. InvestHerCon is not just another real estate conference. It's a transformational experience focused on real estate investing, business strategies, and self-care tactics all designed to help women take control of their financial futures. Gain the knowledge and skills you need to grow your portfolio and build a sustainable business, all while connecting with over 500 women who are playing at the same level. To learn more and to get your tickets, visit InvestHerCon.com today and use the code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. That's InvestHer, H-E-R, Con.com, Promo code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. Quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. For more information, go to bestevershow.com. Focusing on the value in the long term, and I tend to perceive myself as a value investor. And I think real estate is a great investment tool because we've done this a million times, cash flow, the tax benefit, and you know, it's a hard asset for diversification purpose and so forth. Welcome to the Best Ever Show, the world's longest running daily commercial real estate podcast. Our hosts interview commercial real estate experts every day to get you the best advice ever with none of the fluffy stuff. Hello, best ever listeners. Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Ash Patel, and I'm with today's guest, Emily Zhu. Emily is joining us from New York City. She is the chief marketing officer for New Empire Corp., which has developed over $500 million of condos and commercial spaces in Manhattan, Brooklyn, and Long Island City. Emily's portfolio consists of a growing number of condominiums in New York City. Emily, thank you so much for joining us, and how are you today? Good. It's nice to be here. Thank you. It's our pleasure. Emily, before we get started, can you give the best ever listeners a little bit more about your background and what you're focused on now? Sure. So I was a journalist by trade, and I have stumbled in different countries. I lived in Australia, America, and Hong Kong. Canada, and also have a legal background. So when I first joined the empire, I was in the capital markets. I used to raise EB5 capital for the company. 
And as my role expands, now I focus more on the project promotion. We have a lot of new developments going on right now. So I do both. Emily, what is an EB-5? Well, EB-5 is a government program. It was initially promulgated in the 1990s. The initial government intent was to create jobs for the U.S. And for the developer, it's a good source of capital. It can be used either as preferred equity or loan to supplement the developer's equity piece in order to complete a project. And EB-5 is often tied in with immigration. That is right. So two of the requirements are you need to invest a certain amount of investment capital. It used to be half million dollars, and now it's raised to $800,000. It depends on if a regional center project or non-regional center project. So I don't want to get too much detail into that, but that's requirement number one. And the other requirement is you need to create 10 jobs for the project. So that's two primary requirements. Got it. Emily, how does a journalist get into capital markets and then real estate development? Walk us through that evolution, please. Sure. So I was born and raised in China, and I've always um, find it's easier for me to connect with people. And I like to write as well. So journalism seems to be a very easy choice for me, even if everyone else around me tell me to go into finance or accounting, where you can make a very reasonable or decent living out of that. But I kind of followed my heart. And journalism, I think, really gave me a good foundation, even for my later pursuit in the legal profession. Sometimes I have to interview with other people, write a story, develop a different insight and perspective, and so on and so forth. So I think it helps me or like tie in into the marketing as well, because a lot of it is psychology. And have to read the market and read your investor's mind and your buyers, understand your target audience. So I think somehow it's an easy transfer from one skill to the other. So that's sort of the transition. What was your first job in development? Was it with the company you're with now? I started from the legal perspective and then I brought in New Empire as a client. And I think back then, EB-5 was still relatively new concept to them. They really need somebody who will sort of understanding the marketing, but also have some legal understanding as to how the program is involved and then how to talk to investors and so forth. So they brought me on and I've stayed ever since then. And it has been almost six years. And with marketing, you're not only marketing the development, but on the capital raises as well. Yes, correct. Okay. Do you know, Ballpark, what percentage of money you raise from EB-5 versus traditional investors? So in the typical capital stack, uh, let's just say it's a $100 million project. Usually, it depends on your track record. You should probably get 60 to 65% of the construction or traditional loan. And the remaining piece is usually the, the developer's equity. And out of that, because of the job creation number, there is a ceiling in terms of how much money you can raise because the capital raise is based on your construction and your project cost. But I would say usually developers tend to target between 15 to 20% out of that total project cost. They will sometimes leave a little cushion just in case the job creation is not going to work. So from the investor's perspective. Emily, for the rest of the people that are not from New York, It seems like an insurmountable task dealing with regulation, developing in New York, 
it seems like it'd be so much easier. Even go to Miami, go yeah. somewhere, go to New Jersey, go across the river. What are the challenges of developing in New York? Well, I think for us, finding the right opportunities, or let's say just finding the competitive edge. Because if you are capable of doing a project like this size, you need to have a competitive edge. What are you known for? Or how is your product going to stand out in the market? And I think there's almost no creativity in this field because every model and business model or project model has been tested. But for us, we started as a construction company. So we just do it, I don't know if it's the traditional way, but we sort of just have the competitive edge in terms of controlling the cost. And then gradually, we develop ourselves into a vertically integrated company and then started to do bigger projects and the complete projects and independent projects. So finding the competitive edge in New York City is definitely a challenge. There's a tremendous amount of competition out there. Correct. In terms of building, do you do anything design-wise to really push the envelope? Yes. It's interesting that you ask that because our company is very interesting in design because we have almost every pieces throughout the development process. So in-house-wise, we have engineer and architect. But not until recently, we decided to outsource some of the work to a more renowned architectural firm. We have a development manager in-house and we communicate with the outside consultant. And during the pre-development phase, we also engage the marketing and sales team. So it's a group effort in terms of we have the end goal in mind. Who are we targeting? What's the price point? With the budget, then we allocate the resources because the resources are limited. Do we want a fancy lobby or do we spend money in the finishes or the materials and so forth? So yes, we're definitely actively involved in the design part as well. Is there a typical price point that you stay around? Yes, it depends on the neighborhood. In Brooklyn, or just in general, we try to stay under $3 million benchmark because above that is considered you're at the beginning of or at the borderline of luxury economies. And in terms of design, how much more can you charge for that? Are people looking for trendy places to live or do they want value? That's an interesting question. If you design a crazy building and listen, you're in charge of marketing, right? you have a crazy marketing spin on it. How much does that do to increase price? I get that you can increase the demand, but in terms of what people are willing to pay, does that translate? You're asking an interesting question in a way that is kind of philosophical because I think ever since Apple dominates the market, I say this for a reason, everything is kind of simplified. So if you go to a store in New York, you will notice everything is minimalism. And I think that kind of translates into today's residential building as well. So one trend is really just to simplify things, whether you like it or not. But you won't see avocado kitchen or you won't see orange something. So everything is sort of like very nude and very neat. But this is just today's color. It's kind of tranquil or peaceful. I think that's probably something that a lot of buildings are looking at. And color-wise, pretty much everything is very neutral. So I don't know if that answers your question. It does. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Do you spend your time marketing properties for sale or investors more? Uh, sure. So investors really comes in at the early phase. So when we have a land in place, and this is the time that we're 
prepare the pitch deck to the investors. So I personally involve both, but these days I tend to spend more time on the letter. It's just because we have four projects are on sale and then we just purchased another four pieces of land this year. So it's really a lot going on. Emily, does your company typically do ground up development on raw land or is it a teardown of multiple buildings and then a development? Sure. We only do ground up to begin with. And in New York, it's very hard to find a raw piece of land. So usually it involves like a negotiation with the neighbors. Sometimes you have to evacuate, remove the people and uh, have to demolish everything and then do the excavation. In prosperous times, there is a lot of pre-sales going on for condos. Right. Is that still the case? Is the demand high enough to where you're maybe half sold before you break ground? So in New York, there is a law that requires a building to have a condo book before you can launch the sale. And that condo book usually will take, I would say, in the pandemic, maybe a little different, but in general, it takes about 12 months to complete. So usually before the construction is completed, usually one year after the construction start and the condo book is ready. And that is when you can officially start to launch the project. Ah, interesting. Yes. Okay. Yes. So you're developing in one of the toughest markets. Why not go across the river, go somewhere else, go to upstate New York? <laughs> Why not develop somewhere where it's easy, where you can walk into a city council meeting, shake hands, and you're approved? Right. But right? You, you have to help me to define tough. Oh, I don't know specifics, but I can only imagine the red right. tape. Everything's probably union as yeah. well, right? And neighbors and traffic and Actually, zoning. Yeah, I understand. But you know, New York, I think one good part of it is, first of all, the developers tend to be filtered. So there's a process of filtering the qualifications. So whoever is left, they kind of have the whistle and bell to understand how things work. And second of all, I think everything is kind of standardized. So usually if you file something, then you generally can expect to hear from the government or from the DOB or DOF within a certain amount of time, which we don't have to chase them all the time. I'm not sure if this is true in other states because we don't have that much experience. But just based on what we hear, sometimes it can cause a little bit of delay. But in New York, I think it's sort of standardized. So in the way, it's not tough in that sense. But speaking Good. of neighbors, that will be a different story because we have a lot of neighbors. Let's hear a challenging story yeah. about neighbors. I don't deal with neighbors per se, but I involve in some of the conversations. So it really depends on who the neighbors are. Sometimes you have to negotiate very hard in terms of removing them. If it's a rent controlled building, it may take a lot of convincing to do. And other times you have a retail business and you want to remove them. It's probably not the best vocabulary, but let's just say invite them to leave. <laughs> and if they don't want to, or if they want to negotiate a higher price, so it may affect your project development process in terms of the timing. If it's delayed, everything else will get delayed. Emily, do you always have first floor retail half the time? No. Nope. Why or why not? What's the benefit? Do you get a higher price per square foot from first floor retail? That's a very good question. It depends. We have had buildings that have community service. And one benefit of doing that is, of course, you benefit the neighbors. 
if you put a healthcare a center or a medical facility or a daycare center, it just help with the community. From the developers' other perspective is you may get more deductions in terms of how much buildable square feet that you can build. You may get a extra percentage, so you can build higher or taller ceilings and stuff like that. So that just gives a developer an extra reason to build something. So you make the city happy. Yeah, and, and, and you make the neighbors happy. <laughs> yeah, interesting. Is it more profitable typically? I would say yes, because if you get to build more, whether it's taller or bigger, it's going to make the floor plate easier to cut. Okay, you can have better lights maybe and better layouts. So I think overall, it helps to add the value in the long term. Just in terms of price per square foot, do you receive more from commercial versus residential? I have to tell you, the commercial is tough. It's usually the last to sell. Really, I don't know okay. if it's true for everyone else, um, but usually, not until you sell half of the building and then you're still interviewing this commercial person, uh-huh. and then you tell agent, "I'm open to rent it out, but I'm also open to sell it as well." But the seller, even if they're interested, they're like, "I have a tenant. I have more incentive to buy because everything sure. you said, I just come in as an investor, and then I don't have to worry too much." And other things is, what are you going to put in the building? If you put it in a restaurant, it can be noisy and it can be a little dirty with the kitchen and all that. And the residents may not be happy. So it's a tricky scenario. Interesting. In terms of getting investors, what marketing efforts do you do to let investors know that new Empire Corp is out here? Here's the projects we have going on. Yeah, that's always secret sword. <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> yeah, so several different ways. One is just the traditional way by build your branding, whether it's through the PR efforts or just organically, if your building sells good, everything is published. So people can track your performance just by looking at your history. So that's just an organic way of, I guess, grow your fans or audience. And the other way is, I guess, just sometimes through a little promotion. So as a thought leader, you speak at a conference and you meet people and then you build business that way. And uh, I would say the last way is really the referral. So if your investors are happy with you, you make money for them and then it's a amiable relationship. They tend to come back and sometimes bring other investors as well. We'll get back to the show with the first some sponsors I'm confident you'll find value in learning more about. Are you a real estate investor looking to break into the multifamily investing space? Have you heard of MFIN Con happening in Charlotte, North Carolina, June 12th through the 14th? The Multifamily Investor Nation Convention is a place to learn from over 60 high-level apartment investors while networking with more than 700 additional investors. If that's not enough for you, A-Rod, yep, Alex Rodriguez, 12-time Major League Baseball All-Star with over $700 million of commercial real estate assets, will be live and in person speaking at the event. Also speaking is the one and only Dr. Robert Cialdini, the godfather of influence and the award-winning author. I personally love his books. So be sure to secure your tickets to this live in-person event before they're gone. Go to MFINCon.com for more details. Sponsorship opportunities are also available. Visit MFINCON.com today. Use the promo code BESTEVER to get $200 off your tickets. That's MFINCON.com. Can you dive into the numbers? What's the typical return the whole time for investors? Yeah, for us, I have to say, first of all, in New York, in general, it's a little bit lower than the rest of the country. Not the entire country, but 
other secondary market, probably Miami or Texas. But for us, because we are vertically integrated and we can control the land price, you know, how much we buy, and also we sort of can control our construction cost. And the other extra benefit is because of our Chinese background, sometimes we source materials from China and invested in the manufacturing company. So we are able to get high quality materials and incorporate that into our building with customization at a relatively cheaper cost. So we can control that. And the only thing we cannot control is the market price, which is fair footing for everyone. Well, let's dive into the returns though. If I'm an investor, what can I expect in terms of the length of the investment and returns and how often am I paid? I would imagine with development, most of the returns are on the back end. Yep. So it's not a cash flow business, you're right. So if you're coming as an LP investor, usually we are looking at around 14 to 15 percent. IRR. IRR, yes. And if you come in as a co-GP, 19, 20, or sometimes 20, 22, it depends on the project. But it's yeah. just a ballpark. Give people some metrics and some numbers so we can understand how big this company really is. Yeah, sure. So we founded in 1997. And ever since then, we have renovated and independently developed over 120 buildings in the city. Except for Bronx, we pretty much covered all the city and boroughs. And every year we do four to six projects. And each project is around between $70 million to $100 million. And together we deliver around 400 units per year. And all of our projects have some common characteristics, one of which is we tend to be close to the transportation, usually is within 10 minutes walk, usually like seven or eight. And the other common character is we we do not do a lot of high rises. So most of them are mid-rise, it's under 20 or somewhere around there. And our price, as I mentioned before, is usually under $3 million. This is for a higher-end clientele, right? Yeah, certainly is sort of our ceiling line. Usually we go between 700000 if it's a studio, to $2 million Okay, so you have some affordable properties as well. Affordable relative. in the, is relative. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Awesome. Emily, what is your best real estate investing advice ever? I think just like everyone else, I think focusing on the long term, just focusing on the value on the long term. And I tend to perceive myself as a value investor. And I think real estate is a great investment tool because you've done this a million times, cash flow, the tax benefit, and it's a hard asset for diversification purpose and so forth. And I think the other part is intangible is really the trust. Like, do you trust the operator? Of course, people say whatever done in the past doesn't guarantee the future. But then without the past, you can't say anything about the future. So I think you really have to strike a balance as to how much you're confident with the market and the operator. And then don't rush. Just take your time and then build it gradually and steadily. And if you don't lose, you know, you tend to stay for the long term. <laughs> Speaking of long term, what's the length of the investment for new development for the- condos? So the entire investment is usually three and a half years. Okay. Uh, that's in New York. So you need uh, some pre-development phase 
And then, like I said, once the comic book is filmed, it's taking a year, and then you take another year to sell out, usually. And your raise is roughly $40, 50000000 million on each deal? Yes, correct. What's your typical investor profile? Is it family offices, institutions, individuals? I would say a lot of it is high net worth individual and private equity. Institutions, I think, is kind of taking a longer to decide. And dealing with them requires a lot of due diligence, and that can take a very long time. And our deal, once we find something, we tend to close within a certain period of time. So we tend to focus on the investor directly or the fund manager who knows us already or who knows us really well. So we tend to work with them. Is this ideal for family offices? I think so, because family office, I think, first of all, their money is relatively patient. They are already wealthy. They are not in a hurry in general. And real estate is a process, so everyone knows that. And also, they may not want to be the operator. They probably need people like us to be on the ground and do those hard work. And if they trust us, they work with us, I think it's a good match. Emily, you mentioned if you're a GP investor, you get a little bit higher return. How does one become a GP investor in your deals? Yeah, that's a tricky question because to become a GP, we have a lot of due diligence to do as well because you're talking about a real partnership here and also we're giving up more profit. So usually we invite people that either we already know or it has some unique perspective that we can complement each other. I won't say it's a typical business model or deal model for us, but having said that, we don't want to eliminate it altogether because there's always an exception. And the minimum investment on a deal? Minimum investment, I would say usually we invite one LP or GP at a time because it depends on how passive and active that person or that group is. We'd rather deal with one leader instead of there are too many chefs in the kitchen. Yeah. So it can get complicated. In terms of tax benefits, I get that the returns don't come until year three. However, each year, do I continue to get negative K-1s? Well, that part I'm not too familiar with. I'm okay. not completely sure. Yeah. I don't know the answer either. Just, <laughs> you uh, want to invest with us? <laughs> uh, I'm an active investor sure. and we stick with mostly retail, office, industrial, non-residential. But for a lot of investors, especially your profile of investors, where they don't need the returns immediately, they're in it for the long game. I really wonder what the tax implications are. And my guess is it all comes at once. When they get the money, they get the K-1s as well. It really depends on where uh, the investors are from. So for instance, if the investors are from China, they have a different tax structure than the residents of the U.S. And it also depends on how the fund is structured. It depends on where it was structured. So I think it all, I want to say individual, based on individual cases, but also it's a complicated issue. I'm not sure if I'm proficient enough to answer this question. Yeah, I know I'm not. Um, (laughs) So you've traveled to a lot of different countries. Do you try to get investors from different parts of Asia or Europe? Yes, I used to travel a lot to source BB5 investors. So New Empire has our own regional center. And I was sort of like the managing director for the regional center. And one of the key roles as a regional center, other than boosting economic activity, is really to raise capital for the project. So I used to travel to Asia, specifically China. 
Southeast Asia, like India, and I've been to South America, and I meet investors and local agents and try to establish a channel with the local agents to source investors into our project. And with today's world economy and geopolitical issues, is the demand higher for foreign investors into New York? I would say so, especially for instance in China. So recently, it's a common knowledge that the zero COVID policy. I think there's a lot of people are impatient with the policy. It's way too strict in a lot of people's opinion, and I think there is an urge. For some of the local Chinese who want to get out, and if they have the means and resources, and especially family already in the U.S., so I think the urge is even stronger of immigrate or getting out of China. Yeah, Emily. Last question I have on the EB five is: I get that there's a certain capital requirement. The jobs created, can I use your construction jobs as part of my number, or do I have to start a business and actually create unique jobs? There are two types of EB five deals in the regional center, which ninety percent of the investor choose to do the regional center, meaning that you basically have a fund manager. And regional center is really just an entity that's promulgated by the USCIS, and you group the money together into this fund, and you deploy the money into a project. And the job numbers are not direct W two jobs. It's basically, I think, calculated based on some economic factors or models. So, let's say if your construction cost is fifty million dollars, and assuming one million dollars creates six jobs, and then three hundred jobs are created, so technically you can source thirty investors. Got it. That makes yeah, a lot I'm, of sense. I'm advised not to do math in public, so but no, anyway, listen, that's just uh, the concept. <laughs> yeah, that clears it up a lot. Thank you for that because I didn't know how that worked. Yes. So yes. thank you. Emily, are you ready for the best ever lightning round? Yes. (laughs) We're going to do it whether you're ready or not. Okay. Emily, what's the best ever book you recently read? I'm not very good with names, but there is a venture capitalist. I think it's uh, something called Ashmack. I think it was an Indian investor. He's uh, very smart about it. And then he basically just gave advice as to investment, lifestyle, and also fitness. And a little bit of spiritual, and it's really like a good guideline as to pretty much give you a guideline as to key success stories and a lot of good advice and wisdoms. Yeah, a lot of us could probably benefit from some of that balance. Yeah, Emily, what's the best ever way you like to give back? Well, I hope to teach one day. I may not be a podcast host like yourself, not as charming, but in a smaller or bigger way, I like to contribute by spreading the message. Whether through a seminar or a program in the in the university, so that's just another passion and the next step for me. Are you going to teach journalism, marketing, or capital <laughs> markets, or yes. all of the above? <laughs> no, I'm actually thinking private equity. I would like to get to know more about the fund formation. I know that's a lawyer's job, but it really fascinates me in the way that you get to involve in how the business is structured. And what's the best way of doing business? I think is interesting to me. I think you'll do very well at that, Emily. How can the best ever listeners reach out to you? I have a LinkedIn profile. If you Google me as Emily Ju EB Five, you can find me directly or New Empire. And your last name is spelled Z H U. Correct. Got it, Emily. Thank you so much. You're one of the most successful 
big developers in New York City. Thank you for taking the time out of your day, sharing a lot of these intricacies with us. We appreciate your time. Thank you, Ash. Best ever listeners, thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a five-star review. Share this episode with someone you think can benefit from it. Also, follow, subscribe, and have a best ever day.